All right, well, uh, it's great to be with you guys uh, here the, this morning and into this afternoon, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, th I want to, so this is kind of, I'm kind of a last minute-ish fill-in, uh, what got asked last week to cover chapel this morning, and it's great. It's going to provide us with an opportunity to reflect on a passage that I've been thinking a lot about over the past little while, and uh, some themes and thoughts that have been kind of running through my head, again, for the past uh, few months. And those of you who were in my class this morning, uh, you're going to find some of this make a little, a little bit of sense or some of this are going to kind of resonate with what we were talking about this morning. And also, thank you to the uh, worship team for providing uh, such a, a great moment of reorientation and providing us with an opportunity to get a God's-eye view, a God's-eye picture of what's going on in the world. Uh, the call to see your power in that first song is something that's going to uh, line up really well with uh, what we're talking about this morning. We need these moments of reorientation. We need these moments to have our gaze adjusted, to see things from a God's eye view, to have our perspective shaped by the reality of who we are as the people of God. When we're earthbound, when we're stuck dealing with things like polar vortexes, uh, midterms, and whatever else is kind of, uh, is kind of uh, taking up all of your time and energy at this time of, uh, this time of year, we need these times to set our gaze higher and see God at work. One of the many things I love about the Old Testament prophets is the opportunity to see this work of reshaping perspective, to give a God's eye view, is at the heart of who they are and how they minister. So this morning I want to take you to a passage of reorientation, a passage about reshaping perspective, a passage in which a prophet has an opportunity to get a God's eye view on what is, going on in, uh, what is going on in the midst of a difficult situation. I want to take you to a passage that I do confess is going to take a little bit of work to try to figure out what on earth is going on here, but I think hidden within it is a rich and powerful message. So we're going to go to the book of Zechariah, which, which is where I'm sure you spend all of your time in your devotions. Uh, hopefully at a Bible college we can find Zechariah, uh, but if you can't, find Matthew and go back to, all right? So we're going to the book of Zechariah, and I'm going to start reading chapter 1, verse 7. We're going to look at the first of a series of eight visions that Zechariah receives, and then kind of unpack and explore what's going on here. Zechariah 1, beginning in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shavat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. During the night I had a vision, and before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord standing among the myrtle trees, and they said, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and at peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the towns of Judah with which you have been angry these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked to me. Then the angel said to me, Proclaim this word. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with punishment. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and my house will be rebuilt. The measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Lord God, as we open up your word this morning, I thank you for the vastness and richness of what it conveys. I thank you for things like the parables of Jesus, the little sto- stories of Jesus, um, proclamations of, of, of in what we find our salvation that can be so simple in, to understand. And I also thank you for complex things like visions that you gave to your prophets so that we can, you could see your world at work. And we can see your hand and your power, despite what might be unfolding in the situation that the prophet is looking at. So I ask for your spirit to guide us as we engage in the study of your word this morning. I pray that you will enlighten us and strengthen us and refresh us in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. What on earth is going on in this passage? You have angels, we have horses, we have a prophet, and we have God. Context is important. So, Zechariah is prophesying in the post-exilic period after some Jews had returned from captivity in Babylon. However, upon their return, great challenges awaited them. And so some of these challenges looked like it might sink the community, that there was nothing, there would be, they wouldn't be able to rebuild, they wouldn't be able to reshape and form themselves as the people of God again. The temple was in ruins, and it's still in ruins as this prophecy is happening. Um, There's hostility to the whole project of rebuilding from their neighbors, as you can read about uh, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The scars of the Babylonian invasion haven't haven't faded from the land. The land is still ruined, and it's a struggle to grow food needed to feed the people. Everything is rough, very difficult to deal with. Their current overlords, the Persians, may have let them return home, but they're still foreign overlords, and it didn't look like they were going anywhere. The Jews didn't look like they were ever going to be anything more than a small remnant community in the midst of a great empire that really didn't matter. In that context, where's hope? Where's hope to be found? And against this backdrop, Zechariah is going to have the opportunity to reshape their perspective, to reorient them to the world and what's going on and God's place and power within it. So he does it through a series of, I said, eight visions. That's the beginning. That's about the first six chapters of Zechariah are composed of these eight visions. And what he does is he has access to God's courtroom uh, or to kind of the God's court where he can see the power of God at work, and then he can have that perspective that he receives from God and speak it out uh, to, the people, to the people of God. And the first of these visions is the passage we just read, so we need to kind of talk about and understand what's going on here. Essentially, in this vision, there are two movements. Chapter, uh, verse 7 to 13 provides the vision. Verse 14 to 17 provides God's response. So, first, the vision. There are three kind of active characters plus God in the vision. There's Zechariah, the prophet. We have a a figure identified in verse 9 as the angel who was speaking to me. 
This character shows up in all of the visions and basically it provides an interlocutor for Zachariah to work with. Zachariah sees something. He doesn't understand it. He turns and asks the angel, and the angel and him dialogue back and forth, and they explain the contents of the vision. So we've got those characters. Plus we have this third character who's called um, a man on a red horse standing among the myrtle trees. He's then revealed in verse 11 to be an angel, another angel. So he's a man on the red horse uh, standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. He's also the figure in verse 11 called the angel of the Lord standing among the myrtle trees. So you've got these three characters who are all interacting. And what happens here at the beginning of the vision is Zechariah and the one angel are observing a scene um, involving the third figure, the man among the myrtle trees, the angel of the Lord on the red horse. And this is going to sound a little weird, but the way to understand this scene, imagine it's a meeting of the heavenly CIA, okay? Yeah, it sounds a little weird, but this is what's going on. This is a meeting of God's intelligence service, God's spies, it's kind of the, the image. It, 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 the, the, the imagery sets this up. It's at dark. It's at, it, in, at night, in the cover of the myrtle trees, a time for secret revelations. And the presence of the multicolored horses reporting to the man on the red horse is probably meant to be uh, evoke the images of the Persian imperial mail service who were renowned throughout the empire for how fast they could get a message from, say, Turkey to, to Iran. All right? They're kind of renowned for how fast they could convey information. They also double as the empire's spy service to kind of see what's going on throughout the land. So, to keep a grip on the surrounding provinces. So, Zechariah's audience would get this image. They're seeing an image of a report given by figures who are kind of like intelligence officers and spies and reporting back to their commander, the man on the red horse who's an angel of the Lord. Now, the report that they bring back and the response is rather strange. These horses who go throughout the whole earth and come back, they come and say, the whole earth is at rest and at peace. Now, you read this the first time, you go, well, isn't that good? Isn't this great? The land is at rest, at peace. How often can you say that? However, the response that this provokes from the angel of the Lord who receives this report is a cry out to God. He says, the whole earth is at rest and at peace. God, how long? How long will you remain angry with your people? How long will you withhold mercy from them? How long will the stain of Babylonian captivity continue to weigh down and press down on your people and leave them vulnerable and oppressed and in this horrible situation? How long, God, will this endure. So the fact that the earth is at peace is considered a bad thing here because it's the, the status quo means that the Jewish community is still small, insignificant, under foreign control, and the nations that punish them are getting away with it. Nothing's happening to them. The oppressive systems that have trampled down the people of God remain intact. And the angel of God laments and cries out for deliverance in, 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 in response to this. 
So the community, the angel of the Lord kind of gives voice to the cries of the community, a small, insignificant community wondering if, dominated by foreigners, and wondering if God is still there. Is God still powerful? Is God still active? Does God still care for his people? Essentially, I see in this vision what I would call an earthbound perspective. The situation is oppressive. They cannot see hope when they look at it from, their, from the perspective of, say, Zechariah and his angelic interlocutors. They're bound by what's happening on this earth, and their perspective is lowered. But that's not the final word. The second section of the vision comes in verses 14 to 17, and its job is to elevate our vision, elevate Zechariah's vision, and give him a God's eye view that provides hope beyond the current state of affairs. Zechariah receives several short declarations to give to the people. He's told to proclaim that God is still committed to the Jews and to Jerusalem. He is zealous in his care and compassion for them. Yes, they were punished with exile in Babylon, but that's also an extension of God's zeal and God's zeal for his people and zeal for his name and zeal for his covenant. But now that the exile has ended, now that they have come back, God's zeal remains. God's compassion remains, even if they can't see it in the reality that they face. In verse 15, Zechariah shifts perspective to the other nations, and he says, uh, God shifts perspective to the other nations, and and we learn that, yes, the other nations were used to punish uh, the people who broke the covenant. Isaiah 10 talks a lot about this, using Assyria as the rod of God's wrath. But God also is angry at the nations that he used to punish the Jews, according to Zechariah, because they exceeded their mandate. God is angry. The result of this comes in the last couple of verses, where God promises that, you know what? I'm still here. I'm still with you. I'm still your God. And the sign of this is going to be a reconstruction of the temple that will provide an offering of hope. At this time, so that image is kind of given through... um, Yep, so, so like that image is given through when God says in verse 16, I'll return to Jerusalem with mercy and my house will be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt. The measuring line will be stretched out across Jerusalem, which basically measuring line is a thing to sort of make sure the walls are straight. So the measuring line will be stretched out. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt. And further, Zechari- and further visions of Zechariah continue to promise this, and ultimately it becomes a reality. Ze- Zechariah is told to proclaim that the temple of God will be rebuilt, not by might, not by, my, not by strength, but by my spirit, declares the Lord Almighty in chapter 4. So Zechariah is here given a voice from God saying, God is still here. The God's eye view is that God is still present among his people, and people will, uh, will worship him in his house. So, our text begins with an on-the-ground perspective. The, people face, the situation facing the people of God is grim. They can't see any hope in the current status quo of foreign dominance and absence of God's presence. But in the vision, God shows up to correct the perspective and promise through Zechariah that the status quo is not the end. He has not abandoned his people, and they have hope. If I wanted to capture this image of reorientation from Zechariah 1, I might say something like this. God remains sovereign even when his power is hidden. 
God remains sovereign even when his power is hidden. Or, to say it a slightly different way, when the situation looks hopeless and futile, look at it with the God's eye view. Zechariah and his angels can't see God at work in the current situation. The angel cries out, how long? How long will you withhold mercy? How long will your people not see signs of your presence? How long will the enemies of your people remain unchecked? Where are you? Do you see? Do you care? God's power seems to be cloaked, not challenging the dominant systems of the day. And yet, in response to these heartfelt cries, God promises that, yes, he is still the sovereign Lord. He will dwell among his people, and provide restoration and hope. I love this interplay of perspective, the God's eye view, so the, the, the earthbound view and the God's eye view, and seeing how Zechariah has the opportunity to have his view reoriented through the, to the, through the promises and presence of God. It reminds me, I, I had a, a, a situation about 20, 25 years ago in which I got a really uh, sharp lesson in this view of having the proper perspective on the situation that you're facing. One July or August afternoon, uh, our family was up at our cottage in the Muskoka area, and my dad and I decided to go out fishing. Um, and if you know anything about fishing, the good fishing is at the other end of the lake. Doesn't matter what lake you're in, the good fishing is at the other end. So my dad and I went off about, I don't know, 20 minutes or so down the lake in this big honking pontoon boat thing we used that a well-paddled canoe could keep up with, probably, with about a 20-horse engine on this big, anyway. So we went down, and the thing about our lake is essentially it's a long east-west channel, and then there are bays that kind of shoot off of it to the north and the south, surrounded by Muskoka Forest. All right, so we ducked into one of the bays, and we were fishing, and actually, in, in a rather surprising turn for our lake, fish were biting. So we were sitting there and enjoying a nice sunny afternoon. It was hot and steamy and muggy, but enjoying a nice sunny afternoon fishing. Occasionally, we started to hear a little rumble. Then we look up, sky's perfectly blue. Then we heard another little rumble. Sky was perfectly blue. Then we heard a slightly louder rumble. And we decided, eh, okay, we've probably fished enough. So then we got on the boat, put it at full speed. Again, a well-paddled canoe could keep up. Got out of our little sheltered bay and could see the sky to the west. And about, I don't know, half mile behind us was the thickest, darkest, blackest thunderhead I have ever seen in my life. And we all of a sudden realized we were 20 minutes from the cottage in a slow-moving boat made out of metal. Essentially, we are in a slow-moving lightning rod on a lake. So, yeah, so we, we tried it. We just started cruising for home as fast as we could. My dad's like, okay, make a low target. So I'm lying flat on the deck of the boat. My dad is trying to steer the pontoon boat from the ground with his hand up, grabbing the bottom of the wheel go through as the thunderstorm came up from behind us, and it was a little scary, but we made it. I kind of think of the angel in verse 12 of Zechariah, to tie this back, um, to, as being in a similar position as my father and I when we were fishing in a sheltered bay. 
our whole world was calm and at peace. But unbeknownst to us, a storm was brewing. God's promises in verses 15 to 17 are kind of like the coming of the thunderstorm. Even though we couldn't see it, it didn't mean it was any less real or that the coming was any less certain. God's power was hidden to Zechariah, but there was a time coming when it would be displayed in fullness. Interestingly, many commentators look at Zechariah 1 and actually see a fulfillment that happened not long after this prophecy. Um, King Darius of Persia took the throne in a rather convoluted and complicated fashion, and a bunch of people weren't happy about it. One of the places that wasn't happy about it was Babylon, and Darius had to go attack Babylon and kind of pacify it and put it down uh, for resisting his rule. And some look at, at Zechariah's prophecy and say, you know, Zechariah was prophesying against Babylon, this place that felt secure, that meted out punishment against God's judgment, that didn't really get punished by Cyrus, the first Persian king. And you know what? Darius may have brought God's punishment. So this prophecy may have had kind of an immediate, uh, an immediate fulfillment in Darius. All right, so this is what the text teaches us. God's power is real. God remains sovereign even when his power is hidden. How does that speak to us today? How can we reorient our own perspective? I think it helps that this now but not yet vision of God's power or this hidden but real vision of God's power is among Scripture's recurring themes. You can see it again throughout most of Scripture, including many uh, incidents from the life of Jesus. You can see this in Jesus' healings, and healings, which are tend to be followed by warning, or healing and demon casting out, which tend to be followed by warnings not to proclaim it, not to tell it, so that the nature of the kingdom isn't miscommunicated. We can see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, where the disciples go for violent resistance against the oppressive forces that are trying to bring Jesus down. But Jesus does not. Jesus could call on legions of angels, but chooses to keep his power hidden, because it's going to, un be un it's going to unfold in a very different way. After the resurrection and the beginning of the book of Acts, the disciples asked the question, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom? Are you now going to show this full manifestation of your sovereignty and power? No. God's sovereign plan is to work through a spirit-empowered church to provide restoration and redemption to those who call on him. For us, I, I too see some resonance in the hopes and expectation of the disciples, the cries of the angels in Zechariah. We too live in a time where we long for the expression, we long to still see the full expression of God's power. We long to see the great I am that we, that we sang about, you know, exert his authority, show his reality, and remind us all of just whose world this is. And yet, like Zechariah, I think many of us can look at our lives here in Canada and say that things are more or less at rest and at peace, and that this peacefulness and status quo probably means the continuing decline of Christianity and public consciousness, a slow slide into obscurity, a church considered at best a strange curiosity, a wor at worst a thing with no place in this modern world. The proclamation of the gospel becomes challenging even more challenging to an audience that thinks it's irrelevant, outdated, and a relic of less enlightened times. 
In response to these realities from an earthbound perspective, with only our perspective and point of view, it's easy to give in to despair and fear. We see ourselves as losing ground, losing place, and perhaps even losing hope. Yet Zechariah reminds us with a vision from the darkness that the seeming silence and slow-crushing grip of the status quo is not God's final word. There is a God who speaks kindly and compassionately to his people. There is a God who promises that he is present among his people and that ultimately, finally, in some way, in some time that we cannot anticipate, he will reign. His manner of achieving this reign is surprising. It involved the humiliation of the cross and a long period of working through deeply flawed vessels like each one of us in this room. And yet, the testimony of Scripture holds that the result is assured. This morning, I believe that through Zechariah, we are once again called to lift our vision and get a God's eye perspective that shapes the way in which we look at living for God in this world. The key element, I think, as followers of Jesus Christ is that when we have this God's eye perspective, when we are reminded that God is sovereign, even when his power is hidden, we have no reason to to succumb to fear and despair. One writer, I thought, put it well. She says, the church lives, therefore, without fear, in faith that the cosmic change of of regime has already been accomplished. That's the reality in which we live. One perhaps small example from this. Last summer, my church looked to hire someone to run kind of our summer, our summer uh, Sunday school, our summer kids programs, a summer camp, and we were looking at getting it funded through the Canada Summer Jobs Act. Now, you're probably aware, some of you are aware of what happened with that, with the, uh, the current government requiring uh, you to sign an attestation and a waiver that more or less put you in a position of saying that you in some way or shape or form didn't oppose abortion or possibly positively supported it. We couldn't sign it. We had to fund it a different way. But we did, you know, and Alyssa Ralph got a job. So, it was good. You can look at this, and you could lead us to fear and this and other situations like this and other camps and things that face this and look and say, there's fear and despair about our place in Canadian society. What is, our, what is our world coming to? What is Canada coming to when we can't hire someone to run a kid's camp uh, using, you know, with a, a federal grant? You can look at that and succumb to despair, and yet God is on his throne. Other examples of systemic weight may be coming down on us. We may find more systems and policies that have no time and place for God. And yet, God is on his throne. I believe that Zechariah 1, 7-17 gives us a window into the world of the people of God. They faced a grim situation. They were a small community, insignificant compared to the great nations that surrounded them. But they are the community that God chose as his own. Through this vision, Zechariah's perspective is reoriented. He gets a God's eye view that lets him see that God is there. God is active. God is merciful. God is compassionate. God is sovereign. Even when his power is hidden. I believe that this same reorientation speaks to us. In a society where the status quo points to increased secularization and seeks to squeeze God even more and more out of the public sphere, we are reminded that God is not silenced, 
there is no reason for fear and despair, and that the great I am is on his throne. Lord God, I thank you for the encouragement of your word. I thank you that through it we are reminded that we need to see with a God's eye point of view. Lord, as the, as the mess and muddle of our daily existence lowers our perspective and gets us caught up in all the things we have to, feel, to deal with, and some of them are really challenging. Some of them are, are, are causes for despair and sadness about our place in society, uh, what we want to do with our mission and ministry. I do pray that you would help us to keep, uh, keep this reality in mind, that you have conquered, you have triumphed, through the cross, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that you are on your throne, and we await the, the time when your power will be hidden no longer, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that you are Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.